What the Beep Do You Know About Learning English is a podcast for intermediate to advanced learners of English, and some teachers might find it interesting too. The podcast aims to provide different perspectives on teaching and learning English, and at the same time, develop our listeners' English skills. In this episode, we talk to Vanessa, the brain behind Speak English with Vanessa, one of the biggest learning English channels on YouTube. We talk about creating a daily habit in English, how not to cook a hamburger, and touching base. Okay, let's start rioting. In this segment, we find out about our teacher's origin story or where they got their teaching superpowers from. So, Vanessa, what the beep do you know about teaching English? That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure that I would consider myself an absolute expert at teaching English, but everything I know has come from lots of passion and interest to learn more. I think when you teach something, that's the best way to learn more about something. So it's helped me to learn a lot. And where, where did you start your teaching career? I think, was it in Korea? I started before that because I, after I graduated from college with an English degree, I wanted to move abroad. So I was mm-hmm. a nanny for a French family and they wanted me to speak in English with their kids, but their kids had never heard English before in their lives. So it wasn't formal teaching, but it was just day to day, go get your shoes. I think they're under your bed. We have to go to the dance class, these type of daily conversations. And it mm-hmm. was quite a struggle because they didn't know anything, but it started that interest in helping with the ESL scene in some kind of way. And after that, I moved back to the US and taught English, regular literature, grammar, etc., to American students. But then we moved to Korea and that was a more traditional ESL environment, teaching in a classroom to kids, kind of tutoring adults on the side, that whole thing. So it's been a little bit of everywhere, but it's helped to kind of build the interest in teaching over time. Okay. So you had actually had a bit of a, like you were teaching in American primary schools or high schools? Yeah, I taught middle school and high school. So we did Shakespeare, we did grammar, did vocabulary tests, all that kind of traditional school stuff that we all went through, but that wasn't exactly my scene. I kind of wanted to do something a little more flexible with what I wanted to do (laughs) and create my Uh own lessons that I wanted to teach. And schools aren't always the greatest environment for that. So the internet is perfect. Oh yeah. So after Korea, that's where you transitioned into your uh, YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Right after, right at the end of our time in Korea, I'd been teaching adults for a couple months, and I just loved that thrill. That it, it, maybe it's a little bit strange to say that, but the thrill <laughs> that if they didn't like my lesson, they just could leave, and they didn't need to buy my lessons again. As opposed to teaching kids, because if kids don't like it, well, maybe they'll have to stay because their parents want them to stay. But I really liked that challenge of coming up with a good lesson for the adults who really wanted to learn. And it was a good test of if they liked it, because if they came back the next week, I know they liked it and I could keep going. So that kind of got the passion for teaching adults. And then I just Mm. searched how to teach online and did a lot of research and started a website, YouTube channel a couple months later, and I've just been kicking ever since. Yeah, cool. And yeah, it's grown a lot. I see you've got um, over a million subscribers now. 
Yeah, it's kind of surprising. <laughs> and every day it's a little bit of a shock, but pretty cool. And with your content, like how, how do you decide what sort of videos you make for your students online? Well, it's a little bit of everything because at the beginning I was teaching a lot of one-on-one Skype lessons. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of online English teachers or people who make YouTube videos about language kind of have that similar story of, well, my students were making the same mistakes or having the same questions, or I kept recommending certain expressions or idioms to students again and again from all over the world and thought, oh, maybe I should just make a video about this idiom so that a lot of people can learn it, or maybe make a video about correcting specific mistakes. And I feel like now I'm not teaching one-on-one Skype lessons. I have more fixed downloadable course material, but I feel like that time teaching Skype students really, I really try to channel back to that when I'm thinking about YouTube videos, Mm -hmm. because I'm thinking about the students that I taught, sometimes even a student specifically and thinking, how would this help them? Would this really be helpful? Is this just throwing a bunch of information at them or is it really helpful? And kind of trying to personalize it in that way, even though it is just YouTube. So I think really knowing students individually has helped to come up Mm. with ideas. And and it's always a creative process. Sometimes there's more creativity than others. (laughs) And what, what sort of topics do you find the students are most interested in? Well, as far as YouTube goes... The most, if we're going to just go by the most popular videos that I have on YouTube, I feel like people are really interested in, first of all, real English. I mean, that's why you're here. That's why I'm here trying to break out of that textbook model. But understanding real fast English. So, for example, two of my top videos on YouTube are actually pretty much the same thing. It's two sample lessons from one of my courses and mm-hmm. one of the courses launched in January and the other one launched in May. So for each of those times, I made a new sample lesson and both of those became one of my top three videos on YouTube. So something about understanding fast speech, really, it's useful across the board. If you're for learning business English or exams or you're living in the US, like you need to understand fast English. So I think hearing that real conversation style and being able to imitate it yourself really speaks to a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. I think listening's often, I don't know, maybe being neglected in the classroom. Sometimes it's sort of more like tested, but it's tested, uh-huh. you know, with comprehension questions a lot. But a lot of the time it's sort of like not taught, you know, how to understand those, you know, that fast speech you're talking about, you know, how the words connect together and it sort of changes a lot from what the pronunciation might be in a dictionary or, or, or in a course book and yeah, I think students yeah. really, yeah, really, really want to, you know, know how to learn that sort of aspect, like how to listen to fast speech. Yeah, I think once they have the tools, then they can really use it more naturally. They don't have to analyze every single second in hmm. different methods. But once you have those tools, you realize, oh, yeah, I know Americans or British speakers use this type of linking. Oh, I heard that when I was listening to something. Now I can understand it. So I think giving students the tools to do that really just changes the game. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great that you got some courses focusing on that. And we've, I noticed recently in the news there's been sort of a lot of stuff about YouTube burnout. Do you ever find that you feel burnt out by the amount of videos that you're putting out or the schedule that you have? Actually, it's kind of ironic because before 
I've been making YouTube videos for about four years and I recently looked, I think there's about 400 videos on my channel. And at the beginning I was making two per week and then I started making three per week. And then this year I decided to make one per week. And I thought if I actually, that was, was that last year? Was that this year? (laughs) Uh, I decided in any case, when I decided to start making one video per week, I wanted to really focus on making it top quality, the content, really research a lot and think about it. I think that's when a lot of growth really happened on the channel. I don't know if it was because my interest in each video or my passion in each video was exactly what students were looking for or the topics I could just really think about every single video topic much more intensely than if I was doing three videos a week. So when I actually scaled back and did a little bit less, but tried to make it a little bit higher quality or what I wanted it to be more, that's Mm -hmm. really when things started to go even better. So it's interesting. It's not always quantity that is the key. <laughs> yeah, that's often yeah, the big debate I see online, quantity versus quality. I think yeah. yeah, one what you're doing now, I think yeah, having that one good planned video, I think, is quite a good idea. Sure. Helps with not burning out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll say, oh, you've got your, the Fearless Fluency Club. What, what's the idea behind that course? If you could sort of maybe tell the student listeners a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Well, I felt like with YouTube, the videos I was making, they're kind of random helpful topics, maybe a bunch of vocabulary that's helpful or pronunciation or listening or whatnot. But it wasn't really like a full front start to finish course that helps with intensive study because you know you can study for a 15 minute YouTube video and you could study it again and again and write down sentences and you need to do that whole thing, but it wasn't really all inclusive. So I really wanted to be able to include, we mentioned, like we mentioned before, real conversations. So every month I send students a new lesson set and it's all based around a 30 minute conversation that I have with another usually American English speaker, because I just interview people who are my friends or people in this city where I live in the US. And we talk Mm -hmm. about something that they're passionate about. So for example, this month in April, it's about, I interview a yoga teacher and we talk about her journey, how she got into yoga. And it lets students in the course kind of then discuss not just yoga, but relaxation and exercise. We can expand from there. Or we talk about psychology. I interviewed a psychologist. So we talk about those things. There's quite a variety of topics, but I think something that's helpful about it is not just listening to the conversation because you could just go on YouTube and watch the Ellen show and listen to a 30 minute clip of native speakers speaking. And that's that. But in the course, we'll, I'll take that conversation and go through about 15 to 20 expressions that were used in the conversation. And my husband and I explained those for about an hour during a vocabulary lesson and go into detail, talk a lot about examples and break that down. And then there's a grammar video that breaks down all the phrasal verbs and a pronunciation video that really breaks down specific pronunciation in that conversation. So you're taking a regular conversation and really trying to go in depth and learn as much as you can about it. And hopefully giving students the tools to be able to do that with other conversations that they hear, whether it's Mm -hmm. a movie or just a YouTube video, but it's really fun to be able to dive in deep and kind of get an insight into some 
person's passion. <laughs> so I think that students enjoy that. We have live Facebook lessons every week and uh, a Google Hangout together once a month. So there's a lot of other stuff going on beside those main lessons, but it's been a lot of fun. It's been about almost three years at this point that it's been going on. That's a lot of lesson sets, <laughs> but it's been a lot good. of fearlessness <laughs> in the classroom. Yeah. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> and oh, just before we finish this segment, uh, if students want to, you know, connect up with your teaching, where, where should they go? What's the best place for them to find out about you more? Uh, they can just go to speakenglishwithvanessa.com. Very clear and simple, Speak English <laughs> with Vanessa. <laughs> our second segment is called Study Tip of the Iceberg, where we find out our guests' top language learning tips. So, Vanessa, what's the secret to English success? Well, that is a huge question, but I think the biggest tip that I can give is to study little bit by little bit every day. You don't need to study for eight hours every day, but just doing small things, maybe change your phone to be in English instead of in your native language, or write your grocery list in English. Those little things can add up day by day. So just try to incorporate English little bit by little bit. And it's really going to be amazing to see the progress when you just do it daily. Yeah. yeah I think like habit building is a big part and often it is it's sort of starting out small and sort of building that, I suppose, chain of consecutive days of English study. What sort of diet do you think, like what sort of input do you think would be good for, for students in like a daily English diet? Well, I think it's always nice to first, as you're thinking about incorporating English into your day, maybe go through a day and analyze, oh, I can add English here. Or as you're driving to work, think, oh, okay, this is a good spot to add English into my life. Just take some time to figure out when you do have those few precious five minutes of free time or a couple minutes of silence to think about when those times are so that you're not reaching the end of the day and thinking, oh no, <laughs> I totally forgot to do anything with English and now I'm so tired. I've already washed my face, taken out my contacts and I have to do something with English. Instead, you've kind of prepared throughout the day and recognized those little moments when you could Oh, if you have 15 minutes on a commute, listen to a 15-minute podcast. Or if you usually eat lunch alone in a break room, you could read some articles in English or just a little bit of time that you have. So analyzing and figuring out when that time is can be quite helpful so that you don't reach the end of the day and have a little freak out session. <laughs> <laughs> and also, with, um, I think, I suppose, keeping a record of... Of your habits, because I think language learning is such a long journey. It's sort of good to celebrate. I think those those mini successes where maybe yeah, five days in a row you you know you meet those goals or uh, of what you were talking about. Trying to do that little bit of English each day is important for students. Yeah, I think it's also fun to have some kind of short term goal, and it keeps you learning every day. So, for example, a lot of my students will meet once a week to speak with each other in English. And when you know that, oh, on Saturday at 10 a.m., I'm going to be speaking with two other friends from around the world who are also learning English and we have to speak in English together, 
it's going to kind of kick your butt a little bit during the week to practice some. <laughs> so you kind of have that goal and you're working towards it. And it's something fun or something that you really want to do still, but it will keep you consistent instead of just vaguely studying every day, having a specific time sensitive goal. Most of us are procrastinators, so that can be really helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a constant battle for, for anyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but having, yeah, having the, a lot of research, I think, showing you, just having someone to team up with, yeah, to keep you accountable with your goals is really important. Um, and what's that, there's that famous quote, what is it, a, a lived life is a shared life. So, you know, it's a shared experience. I think learning a language is a social, I think, activity. So doing those meetups is really, really important. Um, yeah. with, so just looking a little bit at pronunciation because I know a lot of my students often have questions about it. Um, in the classroom, how, how do you think it's a good way to for a student to improve their pronunciation by themselves if they can't, you know, see a teacher face-to-face? Sure. Um, really the... The main thing that I found via research and just what my students also enjoy doing and are capable of doing, mostly with a busy schedule, is just simply shadowing what native speakers say. So as you and I, Damien, are speaking together, Hmm. just trying to repeat one sentence, maybe pause after we say a sentence and try to repeat that, or pause after one word and try to say it exactly like, I'm saying it or say it exactly like you're saying it. And I do think that it's useful to know a little bit about the specific type of linking or the specific type of sounds that might be common in American English or maybe in specific British English accent. So that way you know, okay, well, Americans often change T's to D's in words that are using a vowel like the word better. I want to speak English better. That's not better, it's better, like a D. Mm. So when they hear me say better, they can accurately shadow that. So having a little bit of knowledge about kind of the keys of pronunciation is useful, but really shadowing it, that's going to help a lot. You don't really need someone else there. You're just speaking out loud and trying to listen and correcting yourself when you can. The trying to repeat that is great. You can do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And with, um, yeah, I mean, like you said, with, with shadowing, I think it's important. And with those, yeah, those different sounds, it, pronunciation, I think it's, more, it's very much a physical activity. So you don't want to keep it in just in your brain and just be listening yeah. to it. Um, <laughs> so actually producing it is... Yes creates that link to listening as well because over time I think you sort of notice as a teacher if that if a student can't produce a particular sound then that sound is often very hard to hear as well mm-hmm. so doing that shadowing and trying to repeat those patterns of faster speech I think then has a positive effect on their listening as well yes for sure for sure one of my other courses is a listening challenge and it's mm. so interesting to hear it comes out once a year. So it's kind of an intensive one month when that happens during those 30 days, because I'm following all the students progress throughout the month. And it's so interesting that when they're listening to this short, like 20, 30 second clip, and then writing comments below that lesson saying this, these two words were impossible for me to hear. I just could not hear it. It's so interesting that those are often, like you said, sounds that are really hard for them to say, 
So when they can hear those more accurately and kind of train that in their ears, it's much easier to say it. Might not always be perfect, but really those <laughs> two are completely linked. So being active in that is perfect. Yeah, as long as they're, yeah, they're comprehensible, that the people can understand them. Yeah. This segment is Languaged Unmasked. We find out about our guests' own experiences of learning a second language. So, Vanessa, could you tell us about your own language learning journeys? Yes. The language I would say I know the best after English is French. And as I'm sure those of you as English learners feel the same way, as being myself, it's hard for me to say I'm completely fluent, but it's really up to other French speakers when they speak with me. Usually they say, oh, great, you communicate in a natural way. You're doing great. So that's what I'm taking as the standard. And I feel pretty comfortable <laughs> communicating in French and have can have you know hour-long conversations. It's not a problem in most topics. Still make some mistakes, but that's pretty normal, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still and, making mistakes in English. I know. <laughs> yeah. I feel like when I tell people that I can speak French, when I say I lived in France for a year with a French family, they say, oh, of course. Okay, that makes sense. But it's really more than that because the French learning journey for me started before that. And I hope that that's an encouragement to English learners because a lot of people don't have the chance to live with an American family for a whole year. And before I moved to France, I thought, oh, maybe I should study French, be pretty cool. I studied abroad in the UK and wanted to hop across the water and maybe visit Paris. So I thought I'd study a little bit of French. So I took French 101, just, you know, my name's Vanessa. I'm an American, very simple English or simple French, mm -hmm. nothing really real. <laughs> and after studying abroad in the UK and visiting France, I thought, all right, this is something I want to do. I want to go back to France. I want to study this more. And I joined, I had couldn't join the next level up French class. I had to skip one just the way the semesters were. And in the class, there were only five people, but none of them, whenever the teacher asked a question, none of them raised their hands. None of them really wanted to speak up. And I just felt kind of blah. Like no one was interested like I was. So I just dropped out of the class and asked the professor, can I just come to your office and speak and try to talk with you for you know 30 minutes, however often you'll let me? And she said, it was a really small college, so we were allowed to do that. And or as a uni, as you might say. <laughs> and she said, sure, come three times a week. Let's do it. So three times a week, I went to her office and she just asked, what'd you do this week? What'd you do yesterday? And each time I had to say something like, how do you say I went camping? I really had no vocabulary. I had nothing <laughs> to start off with, but she wrote notes for me. She'd write out those sentences for me and she'd repeat them back. I'd say them to her. It was so basic, no structure, but I had someone there, like you were saying, someone to keep me accountable mm -hmm. and someone who made it real. She was a real French person there. And it just kind of drove that interest. So she's the one who recommended to me to become a nanny in France. Um, but there's one other thing that I did that I think English learners could definitely do. I've mentioned this on my channel a lot before is in my small town in the U S 
there was a French meetup group. There's a website called meetup.com and there's people who get together under any topic. <laughs> it doesn't have to be language, mm -hmm. but there happened to be a French meetup group because the company, the tire company Michelin is based in that city. So there are a lot of kind of transient one year workers who come from France to the city and they often want to meet up with other people, you know, to feel a little touch of home. So there's quite a few French speakers who meet up once a week in that small town. And I went there, couldn't understand anything, but just was surrounded by it and kind of got the, the passion going. So all of those things just built my interest and built my confidence that I really want to do this. I don't have the tools yet, but I'm just trying to build slowly and steadily. And then going to France and taking classes there and living with the family helped to solidify that. But there was a lot that happened before moving there. So I hope that for English learners who can't live in an English speaking country, it's not the end of the world. There are a lot of things you can do. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, and often I, when I see successful, you know, English learners, they are the ones who sort of search out yeah. opportunities to find, you know, to speak in English or to write in English and do things in English and also seems similar from your experience also like not sort of being worried about maybe making mistakes, just trying to communicate with, you know, with what you've got and, and those ones, those students progress, I, I think, the fastest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And when you went to Korea, did you did you give Korean a go or you? Uh... Yes. So that is that was a roller coaster of an experience because <laughs> when I was living in France, it was just me with a French family, and going to Korea, I was with my husband who is an American. So I was living with an English speaker. My job was speaking English, and in fact, it was against the rules for anyone, even the teachers, to speak in Korean together. So it was an English only environment. <laughs> Big, big alarms would go off if they heard a Korean speaking. They would tattle on each other left and right. Teacher, he's speaking Korean. <laughs> and they would get really upset with each other. So for me, even though I was living in Korea, I had to search out opportunities to try to learn Korean. And I think that's probably true for people who have lived in the U.S. too. Just living in the U.S. or living in the U.K. doesn't guarantee you're instantly a native English speaker. You still got to put effort in yeah yeah for sure some people or some students feel that yeah you can you know you go to the other country and just magically <laughs> happens but you still do need to you know yeah put yourself out there and use the language yeah yeah so I went to some Korean language meetups and I mean learning the alphabet it's supposed to be one of the most basic logical logical is the word they logical alphabets in the world I think there's a Korean saying that says a wise man can learn Hangul. Hangul is the alpha, the writing system. A wise man can learn Hangul uh, before dinner and a fool can learn Hangul in a week. <laughs> so you, if you take longer than a week, you know, it's got to be a little worried. <laughs> so you took uh, seven days? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it took a couple days, but it's very, very simple. That's pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty simple to read. It's just, you know, once you decipher and read it you have to know the vocabulary and it's I'm sure mm. as you know from Thailand completely there's no connection with English there's no simple sample vocabulary like with French and English there's a lot of base vocabulary that's the same in those languages so um, I could read no problem have those kind of 
small talk conversations together. But I think in order to get into a casual conversation situation where you can kind of just shoot the breeze, if I could use that expression, Mm -hmm. (laughs) shoot the breeze with someone, (laughs) I would need to maybe quit that English teaching job and focus six months, maybe one year, really focusing on building vocabulary and building that kind of sentence structure and whatnot, because living with an English speaker, teaching at an English only school doesn't really set up for that environment. So that was, I felt often quite disappointed because it wasn't the same as my French experience, but I was still plugging away, trying to learn, you know, what I could in the time that I had. It's also interesting. I I think I've read somewhere, you know, they talk about, you know, going from different languages, like from English to French is, you know, an easier step than, you know, English to Korean or English to Thai. And it's the same way, like, you know, looking reverse from a a student coming to study English Mm. because sometimes maybe like a, I don't know, a Chinese or Japanese student might see like the European student progressing a lot faster and think why, but it's, it might not, it's not, I think they're, you know, they're, that they're putting in more effort or things like that. It's just, it's just harder coming from different, different types of languages. Yeah, that's definitely true. I have a lot of respect for anyone learning English, but also if you're coming from a language that has no similar vocabulary, you're really doing a great job to learn what you're learning. <laughs> and in either of your two languages, have you ever had any sort of, um, I don't know, funny misunderstandings or embarrassing stories? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure at least there's a couple that stand out. And I think I've told these a couple times to some of my students before, but maybe your audience is not familiar with them. But <laughs> I remember early on, most of these happened early on in France when my vocabulary was still quite low. In fact, the first week that I was in France, the family kind of filled me in on their jobs and what they do and just kind of general background about them. And I, a couple months later, someone asked me, what do they do? Why are their jobs? And I just realized, I don't even know because I just nodded and said, we, uh-huh, uh-huh. The whole time I had no idea at the beginning what they were saying. So mm-hmm. when the, the mother of the family, she'd often leave me little notes to tell me what to feed the kids or what to do during the day to take care of them. And they didn't really speak English, so they would write them in French. And I, maybe I should have used a dictionary a couple times, <laughs> but I didn't. And one time she said to cook the hamburger patties not too much. And I guess she meant maybe like medium rare or medium or something like that. But mm-hmm. for some reason, I interpreted that as cook them a lot. <laughs> So I cooked them almost to the point of being burnt. They were like rubber. And the kids looked at them and said, we're not eating this. <laughs> and I put it in the fridge and told the mom when she came home. And she looked at it and said, Vanessa, do you know what pas trop cuit means? And I said, yeah, I cook them a lot, like you said. <laughs> and she said, no, that means not that cooked. <laughs> and... They just, you know, had a little laugh and I guess you just have to laugh at yourself too, but that was... Well, I suppose you never, you never forget that, um, how to use that expression again. Oh yeah. You is the advantage. Know. <laughs> definitely know. And there was one time in Korea, especially early on, when I was trying to learn the basic questions that a lot of people would ask, like, uh, what's your job here? Where are you from? Are you married? Those kind of 
get to know you questions. And I was going into mm-hmm. a little shop to order some lunch that I was going to take out and then take to the school. But I didn't really know, I guess it's a cultural misunderstanding too. I didn't know that you don't often wait to get the takeout. Usually you just tell them, I want it takeout and they deliver it to you. And it's just kind of a common service because everyone lives pretty close by. So I could have just gone in, said that's what I wanted and they would have delivered it. But instead I waited there (laughs) and the lady got my order. And then I heard the word where, and I thought she was asking Mm. me, where are you from? <laughs> but so I said, uh, which means I'm from the US. <laughs> and she had this really weird look on her face. And I thought, okay, maybe I said something wrong, but I don't think I was offensive. So I'll just ask one of the teachers later. So I got my food. I went into the school and I asked the teacher, what, what did she say? I kind of remembered a couple of the other words that she said. And they said, Vanessa, she asked you, where do you want me to deliver this food? (laughs) And I imagine she probably just thought, you want me to deliver this to America? What are you thinking? (laughs) So that was a little... You would have had to pay a a high postage fee for that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Why are you ordering our food to go to the US? (laughs) So just a little... You you have to laugh at yourself, though. Just a couple misunderstandings amongst many, many... (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important for students to understand that because I think sometimes students can feel, you know, demotivated when they're, you know, trying really hard to express themselves and they do have a misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. That, that's, that's normal. It's just part of, you know, the whole learning learning process. You sort of need to pick yourself back up again and, you know, keep trying. Yeah, don't be too serious. Um, oh, and just the last bit for, for this segment, did you have, I think, one of the good things about learning another language, you often find out, new ways to express yourself, possibly, you know, in French or in Korean, like expressions that we don't have in English? Yeah. Um, Well, you kind of threw me for a loop because I haven't really thought about that. I just drank a glass of wine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I feel like for me, maybe it's not a favorite expression, but I really like, there's two just common things you can say, like, for example, I am, and I don't know, those are really common things you say, but there's really specific ways that French people say them. And I love that whenever I say them, if I'm speaking to a a native French speaker, they usually stop and say, whoa, you said that in such a French way. So for example, if you say, uh, je suis, it means I am, but usually they don't say je Mm -hmm. suis, they link it together and say, shui. So there's kind of a sh sound in there, shui. And if you're, for example, if you say, I am tired, je suis fatigué, but instead of saying je suis. So if I said to a French speaker, oh, je suis fatigué, they'd think, oh, whoa, Vanessa, and I love that feeling of, I know something so natural. <laughs> but the ironic yeah. thing is, it sounds really common to the F word in Korean. So when I was speaking French oh, <laughs> in Korean, one of my, I was speaking French and there was a one of my Korean friends was there in Korea. He stopped and said, Vanessa, what did you just say? He was shocked because I usually don't <laughs> swear. <laughs> and it sounds a yeah. lot like a swear word in Korean, a really strong one. So anyway, if you say shepa in Korea, just be aware. <laughs> in its raining swear words and idioms, we find out our guest's number one expression or swear word in English. So, Vanessa, what are we going to focus on today? Swear word, idiom, expression, or a bit of everything? 
Well, the expression that I have today might not be, I don't know if I have an absolute favorite expression, but it's something that I use today and I thought it would be relevant because if something's used daily, then hopefully English learners as well can use it often in their daily lives. Yeah, high frequency is good. Yes, yes. So if I said to you, Damien, let's touch base next week and figure out when to record this podcast, what would that mean to you? Yeah, so it's sort of like we we need to meet up beforehand, so either like a quick quick email or it could be a quick call. Yeah. It's a baseball, baseball connected one or not? Yes, this is a baseball expression. And I actually said this to my mother-in-law because she's going to visit us later in the week and she wasn't exactly sure when. So I, she just said to me, okay, well, I'll, I'll let you know later. And I said, okay, just touch base whenever you have more details about it. So she's not really playing baseball and touching the bases. So first base, second base, third base, home base. But instead, hmm. she's just quickly giving me some kind of updated information. And in English, we have, at least in American English, I imagine probably the UK use them as well, a lot of baseball idioms. <laughs> yeah, there's lots. It's interesting because we don't, I mean, we don't really play baseball at all. But Sure, crickets, maybe you're more your thing. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was studying some French idioms. I actually, I don't know an awful lot of French idioms. It's one of the things that I haven't focused an awful lot on, but the ones that I know, they often are about food and then mm. their counterparts in English are about sports and a lot are about baseball. So I think that's kind of a cultural thing that in the US, baseball is just something that everybody plays and everybody knows about. So using, oh, let's touch base next weekend or make sure you're on the ball or oh man, that was, uh, he's going to hit a home run. These kind of daily life expressions that are about baseball are pretty common. So students getting a bit of a bit of an understanding of how baseball works in America might, might help them with their sort of uh, idiomatic language. Yeah, for sure. Our final segment in the Red Room is inspired by Twin Peaks. So, Vanessa, can you give us a bonus expression and we'll speed it up or slow it down and the first listener to decode it and leave an audio comment on the podcast will get a prize. Okay, Vanessa, what is your bonus expression? It is. He threw me a curveball. Okay, so it's a bit more of the baseball theme. So you can also leave an answer on the blog post as well. Okay, that brings us to the end of the episode. I'd like to thank you, Vanessa, for coming today. I know you've got a very busy schedule, so I appreciate you making the time. And I think our listeners um, picked up lots of things from what you shared and also myself. I think I learned some new things about being a successful learner of a language. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was really nice to meet you. And I hope that all of the English learners out there, I hope that all of you enjoyed our conversation. I hope you enjoyed the eighth episode with Vanessa. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment through the Anchor app or at English Riot to have the chance of winning the prize. Also, head over to www com for bonus material including how to use some of the English expressions from this episode. Finally, sign up for English Riot's e-newsletter, The Sledgehammer, to get access to weekly English learning tips. 
See you in episode 9, where me and Damien discuss online tools for finding collocations in English. Huh? Collo- what? <laughs>